Jesus was not a victim of his crucifixion. He was the victorious volunteer who chose to lay down his life. Like Jesus, we must be committed to completing God's mission for our lives, regardless of the cost. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us, and now, here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you'd open your Bibles to John 18, John 18. As you know, we've been in the Gospel of John for about a year now. We've John records the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, and as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, John really divides neatly into two pieces, two sections, chapters 1 through 12. John records the public ministry of Jesus to the nation of Israel, and then chapters 13 through 17, it's much more of a private ministry where he's one-on-one with his own disciples. Most of that is in the upper room called this farewell discourse. He's now finished his farewell discourse to them and his great high priestly prayer to his heavenly father in uh, chapter 17, and now we're going to move into the actual sacrifice of the Son of God, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, and chapters 20 and 21 then uh, review Jesus' resurrection and his final instructions to his disciples before his resurrection. Now, all four Gospels spend a significant chunk of of text and space dealing with Jesus' final week. That's really the purpose. About 30% of the gospel texts, all four of them deal with his arrest, trial, suffering, crucifixion, resurrection. It's really the high point of the reason for the gospel in the first place. But each gospel writer emphasizes various aspects of that narrative that they want to document. For example, all four gospel writers mention Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John record somewhat similar uh, narratives. They record uh, Jesus' prayers of anguish to his Father. Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. All three of them record the prospect of enduring the wrath of God being so severe that they literally say, uh, Jesus' sweat became as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. All three of those gospel writers report that the disciples slept while Christ was praying in the middle of his suffering. John records none of those details. The gospel of John doesn't cover any of that because it doesn't suit his purpose for his gospel. John tells us the point of his gospel in the very second to the last chapter. He says in John 20, 31, these, these signs, this narrative, this gospel has been written for two reasons. One evangelistic, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and two, having believed, you may have life in his name. So John wrote the gospel and the signs and the narrative to document the fact that Jesus was God in human flesh, and number two, to persuade the reader to place their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ so that they can have eternal life. That's the point that he wrote those. So John is going to highlight the mastery of Christ in every circumstance and every situation. He's going to highlight the lordship, the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when he talks about, in chapter 18 and 19, 
the arrest, crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection, he is going to highlight the details that demonstrate his majesty. And what we're going to see today is Christ's strategic control over every detail of his own death and crucifixion and suffering and subsequent resurrection. So let's pick up the narrative in chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these things, he's talking about the upper room discourse and the prayer to his Father in chapter 17. He's now finished that prayer. When Jesus had spoken these things, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, and officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Here's our first principle. Jesus was not a victim of his crucifixion. He was the victorious volunteer who chose to lay down his life. Let me repeat that. Jesus was not a victim of his crucifixion. He was the victorious volunteer who chose to lay down his life. John notes that when Jesus had finished his discourse and his prayer to his heavenly Father, he uses interesting words. He says, he went forth, which indicates purposeful activity, proactive, active leaving the city of Jerusalem. He's now leaving uh, through the eastern gate. He's not staying inside the city where the crowds can protect him. As a matter of fact, right now, as he's walking out between 17 and 18, it's probably after midnight. So they've been talking all Thursday night in the upper room, and now they're walking outside the city gates and moving away from the protection of the crowds. Um, and he is deliberately going to a place where he has often gone before, and he's going there because he knows that's where Judas is going to come with the troops and the soldiers. He has a date with the cross, and that begins with a date for his arrest. He's not going into hiding. He's got a divine timetable, and everything you see John highlight, he is operating on God's divine timetable to accomplish his purposes. So Jerusalem is on top of Mount Moriah. They cross, they go down the Kidron Valley, and they begin to climb the Mount of Olives. Now, obviously, it's known for olive groves. I mean, they call it the Mount of Olives because it's known for its olive groves. There's a specific olive grove or an olive garden, uh, not the restaurant, an olive garden uh, there. <laughs> I thought about that. But they, they literally had gardens that were walled enclosures with gates, and you could lock these. They were private um, um, olive groves. And uh, this particular one was called Gethsemane. Gethsemane translates into oil press. If you're going to produce olive oil, you have to press the olive to the point of crushing it. Of course, there's been a lot of songs written about how Christ, our Savior, was crushed uh, based on Isaiah 53, and it's a good, uh, good illustration of that. So this, he's going to a particular garden. Uh, it suggests that it was private, walled, door gate, and that he had been there on a regular basis before. Gardens, interestingly enough, are pivotal in Scripture. There's really three of significance. There's the Garden of Eden, where it all began. There's the Garden of Gethsemane, where a new life began. And then there's the Garden City, the New Jerusalem, where history is consummation. 
So the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane have interesting parallels. The first Adam, Adam and Eve, met Satan in the Garden of Eden. They didn't do very well in that contest. As a matter of fact, they succumbed to his deceitful temptations, and as a result of their failure, sin entered into the world in the Garden of Eden, which was a perfect place. Paradoxically, Adam wanted to be God. Satan said, if you follow me and believe me, you will be like God, right? Well, Adam wanted to be like God, but as a result of his sin, he didn't become like God. The entire human race became slaves. Such are the lies of Satan. Jesus is sometimes called the last Adam, and we're going to see today that Jesus, the last Adam, met Satan in the Garden of Gethsemane and triumphed over him. As a result of Jesus' sacrifice for sin, Satan and uh, his hordes were defeated. Interestingly enough, in the Garden of Eden, Eden, after Adam sinned, he did what? Adam and Eve hid from God, and human beings have been hiding from God ever since the Garden of Eden. Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and revealed himself as the Savior, as the Lord. Verse 2. Now, Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Now, remember, only a few hours before, they're in the upper room, and Jesus, during the Passover meal, says, one of you, 12, is going to betray me. And then he identifies Judas as the one. Judas must have been petrified. How could he betray Jesus now that Jesus already knew his plans. I mean, he knew that he was going to betray him, so the game was up. Interestingly enough, immediately following that, it says that Satan entered into Judas. I suspect Satan entered into Judas to make sure he didn't chicken out, (laughs) change his mind and say, well, now Jesus knows there's no sense here trying to pull this one off, so Satan said, i got to take this guy over, and we're going to make sure that this this uh, betrayal takes place and the Son of God is killed. So the chief priests, remember, had originally tried to kill Jesus after the Passover feast. They said, gosh, you know, there's all these crowds. We could have a riot on our hands. So Jesus is still very popular. So we can't arrest him during the Passover feast. We have to wait till the Passover feast is over. There was a problem with that, though. That wasn't God's plan. God had a divine plan from eternity past, a divine timetable that Jesus and his Father had chosen. And no one knew that at this point in time. The disciples are completely in the dark. Even though Jesus has been saying, the Son of Man is going to die for the sins of the world, they're clueless, which we're going to find out here fairly soon. They really only get it after the Holy Spirit comes. And that's when Peter highlights the divine plan of God in his great sermon in Acts 2. So in Acts 2.22, Peter gives us some fascinating um, language that really highlights the sovereignty of God as well as the human responsibility of man. Quote, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and signs and wonders which God performed him in your midst just as you yourselves know. He's basically saying, look, you know he came from God because of everything he said and everything he did. All these miracles and signs for three years, very public, very visible, you know that. Verse 23, this man, Jesus the Nazarene, 
delivered over by, quote, the predetermined plan of foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put into death, but God raised him from the dead. So God's plan from eternity past that Jesus Christ was to be the substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of the world, and yet evil men with full moral responsibility chose to murder the Lord of glory. So God's predetermined plan was to redeem humanity and reconcile our broken relationship through Jesus' payment for sin. These evil people, the Jewish religious leaders as well as the Romans, they killed the Messiah, but God had planned it from eternity past. At the same time, that Jesus was going to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. As a matter of fact, the Passover feast instituted in Egypt by God was a picture of Jesus' sacrifice. It was the innocent lamb slain to take away the sins of the world. By the way, sacrificing physical lambs doesn't take away sin. It covered the sin, but it didn't take it away. But the sacrificial death of the Lamb of God will take away the sins of the world. Jesus had to die at the exact same time that the Passover lambs were being sacrificed, which was 9 to 3, 9 and 3, morning and evening sacrifice during the Passover. So God's timeline was extremely precise. So what we're going to see now is Jesus forces the Jewish religious leaders to operate on his timeline, not theirs. Remember, throughout the Gospel of John, throughout all four Gospels, you always hear Jesus saying, my time has not come, my time has not come, my hour has not come. And now he says, my hour is now. It is now my predetermined, pre-planned, from eternity past time to die for the sins of the world. Now Jesus knows that Judas is the betrayer. Jesus knows that he's already conspired with the chief priests and Pharisees to arrest him. That's why Jesus kept the location of the Passover meal a secret. He only told Peter and John, go get the room. He didn't tell anybody else, because if he told Judas, Judas would have gotten the troops right then, and they would not have had time to have the farewell discourse or the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper. So he kept that a secret. So Jesus identifies Judas on Thursday night, knowing in advance that Judas is immediately going to go to the chief priests and Pharisees and tell them their secret plan is known, and they only have a few hours to get the police and soldiers together and then try and locate Jesus and arrest him, or they're terrified he's going to slip out of their grasp again. Remember, how many times have they failed to arrest him so far? Multiple times. Judas is telling them now, you better get this done because you failed before, you have to arrest him now. Well, that was exactly on God's timeline. So Jesus now deliberately goes to the place that he and his 12 disciples have often gone before. Luke tells us that during Passover week, Luke 21, 37, Jesus, during the day, was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. Apparently, he bivouacked, he camped out on the Mount of Olives all during Passion Week, apparently. In public, it's interesting, Jesus was never alone. He was always with crowds of people. And it seems that he regularly went to the Mount of Olives to be alone, to pray, to spend time with his Heavenly Father. You know, one of the things we, we think about 
you wonder how much time Jesus, how many times Jesus just craved alone time. I mean, when you're the Messiah, everybody wants something from you. How many people came and said, Jesus, by the way, I got a prime rib dinner. I know you haven't eaten in a while. Let me, let me, let me fix your dinner. They were going, no, heal this, fix that, solve this, pray for that, right? Cast this demon out. He was always giving and giving and giving, and he physically got exhausted. So this enclosed garden was a sanctuary for him and his disciples. It seems likely that some wealthy supporter of Jesus owned this particular garden, olive garden, and made it available to Jesus on a regular basis because it appears that they had been here frequently, many times before. At any rate, Judas knew it was a favorite place of Jesus. Think of it from Judas' standpoint. This is an ideal spot to arrest Jesus. It's out of the city. It's away from the crowds. It's after midnight. It's secluded. He can bring a lot of troops and police up close to Jesus and arrest him without any public notice. What could be better? Precisely as God planned, right? So Jesus is seen as arranging his own arrest and his own execution. Neither Judas nor the Romans could take Jesus' life away from him. By the way, no creature, no creature, created being, ever can take the Creator's life, right? The Creator is the Creator. Jesus chose to lay down his own life. While he was on earth, Jesus' life was completely under his Father's control. He was not a victim. He was a volunteer. He says in John 10, 18, No one has taken it, my life, from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So while on earth, he was submissive to his Father, and his Father gave him the right to lay down his life. Interestingly enough, on the cross, it says that Jesus gave up his spirit. Death did not come for him. He said, it's now time, and chose the exact moment, three in the afternoon, when he was going to physically leave this world, and his spirit, of course, left his body at that point. So Jesus had planned his own death from eternity past. This plan is eternal. He deliberately goes to the place where he's going to have a divine appointment with Judas, verse 3. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. The chief priests, you know, the Pharisees, they're not taking any chances. They've tried to arrest him so many times, they've been humiliated by their failure. They had sent these temple officers once before to arrest him, and they came back and they said, and they said, where's Jesus? And they said, never have we heard someone speak like this man. Well, duh. He spoke with infinite authority because he had infinite authority. He was God in the flesh. On more than one occasion, John records they tried to stone him on multiple occasions. They failed. His own village tried to push him off the cliff. If you've ever been to the, that cliff, uh, uh, the Jezreel Valley, Pretty steep. You could die dropping down there. And when the first sermon he preached, they tried to push him off the edge of the cliff. They didn't like what he said. It says that he went through their midst. It was not yet his time, and now is his exact time. So the Pharisees and the scribes, they gather a really large force, armed to the teeth. They want to ensure that his arrest is successful because they're scared of at least two things. One, they're terrified of his personal power. 
Earlier this week, Jesus cleared out the entire temple. If you've ever been to the Temple Mount, it can, that place can hold a lot of people, probably tens of thousands of people. He clears out the temple by the force of his words and his personal holiness. He overturns the tables of the money changers, drives out the animals, etc., etc. That may be just a little glimpse of the wrath of God against sin. Right? And they saw that. And he'd done it at the beginning of his ministry as well. Furthermore, they've heard about him. They've heard that he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee with his words, peace, be still. They heard that he fed a crowd of 20,000 people. They heard that he healed a blind man. They heard that he raised Lazarus with his words. So they feared his personal power. The second thing they feared, they feared the Jewish crowds. Jesus was very popular. And the Jewish religious leaders were terrified that the crowds would come to Jesus' rescue and maybe attack them. What they really feared was a riot because the Romans had used deadly force in the past to quell riots. They would not tolerate insurrection against Roman authority. Anything that smacked of mob violence, they would crush it like a bug, and they had done it on multiple occasions. The Jewish people hated to be under the thumb of Rome, so from time to time there would be riots in Jerusalem, and Rome would just slaughter the Jews. No questions asked. So, as a matter of fact, it had gotten so bad that during the Passover feast, when you had hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem, a lot of pilgrims came in, Rome moved an entire contingent of soldiers from the Roman garrison on, the, on, on Caesarea by the sea, and they moved them to the Antonio Fortress. It's literally located on the northwest corner of the Temple Mound. This is a model. And it was built right next to the Temple Courtyard, and there was a series of towers. They could literally look into the Temple Courtyard so that if a riot began, they would have troops on site. And they moved large numbers of soldiers into this fortress every Passover because it had been such a history of troubles. I mean, think about it. You got huge crowds. You got a lot of religious fervor. This is the high point of the Jewish religious calendar. And you got a natural and national patriotism. And you got a common hatred of Rome. So it's pretty explosive. Uh, and Rome took no chances. They moved a lot of troops in here at that point in time. Uh, so the Jewish religious leaders, they not only bring their own temple police, who, who police the temple grounds, they ask Rome for a contingent of soldiers, and they get it, because Rome knows this is Passover time, you better have an armed detachment. It says they bring a cohort of Roman soldiers. A Roman legion is 6,000 soldiers. 10% uh, of that is a cohort. So a cohort's about 600 soldiers, and the Greek word that John uses here is uh, maniple, it's a detachment, it's part of a corps, about 200 Roman soldiers. So you've got about 200 Roman soldiers, plus the temple police, probably another couple hundred. So you've got 400 armed troops going after this Jewish itinerant peasant rabbi who's got power, and they've seen it, so they're scared, right? And they come with lanterns and torches and weapons, and you say, well, why did they come like that? Well, they assumed that Jesus would flee. I mean, wouldn't you? If someone's after you to try and kill you, wouldn't you flee? Well, they assume that, you know, he's going to flee. So they, have to, they figure, we're going to have to do a manhunt. We're going to have to conduct a manhunt at night. Interestingly, the Passover festival always took place during a full moon. 
But nobody wants to search for a fugitive on a mountainside, right, covered with orchards, olive orchards, without lanterns and weapons. So they come with lanterns and torches. Interestingly enough, Jesus had said, I am the light of the world. So the world comes looking for the light of the world with lanterns and torches. Interesting, yeah. They missed the whole point, right? And it says Judas. Judas has walked with Jesus for three years. He saw all his miracles, heard his words of forgiveness, saw, heard the truth, saw the truth, listened to his claims of deity. Despite all this, he refused to acknowledge his sin. He refused to trust Jesus for forgiveness and salvation. He is the master hypocrite. He's been living a lie for three years. He's been living with the disciples under Jesus' tutelage, but he's a thief. He's greedy, and John records that he's been stealing from the public purse, the common purse they kept regularly. Here's the interesting thing about Judas. Knowing about Jesus, being associated with God's people, will not save him, and it will not save you either. I don't care if you're in church 24-7. It won't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. Salvation requires a personal relationship. It requires a submissive relationship and going to God and surrendering yourself to God and asking Him to forgive your sins because you know you need saving. Because it's a humbling position that said... I don't have a solution for my sin problem. My relationship with the Lord, with Almighty God is broken because of my sin, and I want that relationship restored, and Jesus is the way for that relationship to be restored. Have you ever wondered, why didn't Judas just point Jesus out and say, that's the guy, arrest him? I mean, why betray Jesus with a kiss? What's that all about? You know, in that day, if you were a slave, you kissed someone's foot. If you were a social inferior, you kissed someone's hand. If you kissed someone on the cheek, it was a sign of affection, intimacy, and it says we are equals. Friendship between equals. Kissing on the cheek was a friendship between equals. So remember, Judas had just left a few hours before. Nobody but Jesus knew why he left. The rest of the disciples thought that he was going to go give money to the poor and all this other stuff. It seems as though Judas wanted to convey to Jesus that he was his friend and he'd actually come back to join the group. Jesus is not fooled. He knows what the kiss means and he unmasks Judas' hypocrisy with one question. Luke twenty-two forty-eight. But Jesus said to him, Judas... Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas' character is now so corrupted that he uses a sign of intimate, trusting friendship as a signal for a vicious, lethal betrayal. Because remember, he said that when I, who I kiss, that's the guy, betray him. I don't know whether he thought he was going to snuggle up to Jesus and distract him with a kiss so the soldiers could move in without Jesus running. Clearly, he didn't understand or didn't want to believe that Jesus had said, I'm voluntarily doing this. Verse 4, So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming on him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus the Nazarene. 
He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying, and was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Here's the principle. No one can stay on their feet in the presence of holy God. No one can stay on their feet in the presence of holy God. See, Jesus knew exactly what was going to take place because he had planned it with his father from eternity past. By the way, as a young man, he, by the way, he had read all the Old Testament prophecies in detail. He knew the prophecies about the sacrificial death of the Messiah. He had read Genesis 3, Genesis 22, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 10 to 12. You know that Jesus, when he was 12, was in the temple astonishing the religious leaders with his knowledge. So he had read everything about the Messiah's sacrifice. He didn't seek to avoid it. He took control of the situation to ensure that it would take place. He also took control of the situation to secure the release of his disciples. It's interesting, you don't see Jesus running away from the soldiers. He didn't run from them and he didn't wait for them. He strides right up to them and he puts them on the defensive with a strategic question. Whom do you seek? He's in command and they are responding to them. He wants them to reveal who's the name on your arrest warrant. You have been given authority to arrest somebody exactly who is it? And they said, we're here to arrest Jesus the Nazarene. And your text in your Bible has the phrase, I am he. The Greek text does not contain the word he. Jesus actually said, I am. This is the tetragrammaton, right? This is the four-letter name of God, Y-H-W-H, translated Yahweh, right? When Moses asked God what his name was in the Old Testament, Exodus 3, God said, I am who I am. The word I am is the word for being. Jesus is saying, I am the eternal, self-existent being. My existence, my being, is dependent on no one but myself. I have existed from all eternity, and I will exist for all eternity. So when Jesus says, I am, he's saying, I am God. John records that when Jesus stated the divine name, his divine name, the crowd of soldiers and officers drew back and fell to the ground. And it's interesting that Judas is standing with them, with the enemies of Christ. I imagine he fell down as well. Jesus is God, and as such, he can create with the word, and he can destroy with the word. Genesis 1 says what? And in the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light with a word, only a word. Isaiah tells us that at the end of the age, quote, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. We know that at the last battle, when Christ returns in glory, he doesn't even pull a sword out. He slays them with the word of his mouth. Satan and the foes, the enemies at that point in time. So some have suggested, I've read a number of commentaries this week, that when Jesus said, I am the Shekinah glory of God, shone from him, and, and of course the soldiers fell down in awe and fear. That's what happened during the transfiguration. Jesus pulled back the, his humanity a little bit that veiled his glory, and the disciples saw the brilliant, bright glory of God blinding, and they fell to the ground. But Scripture doesn't tell us that. Scripture just says, he says, I am his words only. By the way, scriptures filled with examples of people who lost their footing and fell down in the presence of divine holiness. 
Isaiah's given a vision of holy God seated on his throne, and he says what? Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. He's, in other words, he's convicted of his own sinfulness. When he says, woe, that's a declaration of anguish and calamity and judgment. Um, your translation may say, woe is me, for I am undone. Undone. Undone literally means coming apart at the seams, falling apart, disintegrating, collapsing. Uh, I'm sure some of you have seen um, videos of tall buildings being demolished with explosives, right? You get these tall buildings. When the explosive charge cuts through the structural supports of the building, the building literally comes apart. And when it comes apart, it comes down. When sinful humanity is in the presence of holy God, your structure falls apart and you're on your face, you're on the ground because sinfulness cannot stand in the presence of holiness. Job, at the end of his book, he declares in chapter 42, he has seen God and he says, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. He's face down in the dust. Jacob has a dream of angels descending and descending and he awakes from his dream and it says he was afraid. He says, the Lord was in this place and I didn't know it. I was sleeping. Joshua, before he attacks Jericho, comes across someone who looks like a soldier in Joshua 5. It turns out it's Jesus in his pre-incarnate form, and he identifies himself as the captain of the Lord's host, and Joshua falls on his face, and Jesus says, take your sandals off. You're on holy ground. So he does. Ezekiel 1 says that when he had visions of God, he fell on his face. Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain, and they heard the voice of the Father. It says they fell on their faces, and they were terrified, Matthew 17. Actually, falling on your face in the presence of holy God is the right response. You might try it. I am a huge believer in praying at least once a day with your face on the floor. On your knees. Okay, on the carpet. You're soft, I'm soft, right? Our knees won't get up. It will change the way you approach God when you are face down before Him. It reminds you that He is God and you aren't. We strut around like we're some big deal, and then God gives us a little germ, and then when we empty everything out, we go, I guess I'm not a big deal. You never were. None of us ever were. Seriously, physical position has an enormous amount to do with spiritual attitude. Philippians 2 says what? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. At the end of the age, nobody's going to be standing. The presence of holy God always brings about conviction of sin. Holy fear, humility, awe, and worship. These soldiers falling down, that's just a preview of what the entire universe will do. What John is making clear here is the absolute sovereign control that Jesus has over his own death. No one arrests him without his arranging it. No one crucifies him without his control and consent. Verse 7. Therefore he asked again and said, Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So, if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Here's the principle. Jesus sacrificially loves and protects those who belong to him. Jesus sacrificially loves and protects those who belong to him. So Jesus asked them a second time, who do you seek? They say, our arrest warrant is for Jesus alone, 
And Jesus then intervenes for his disciples. They've stated, we don't have any authority to arrest the 12, we are the 11. We only have authority to arrest you. So he says, then I want them to be free to leave without being arrested. Generally, you know, when you arrest a leader of an insurrection, you arrest the followers as well, because they're guilty by association. Jesus is wanting to set them free from arrest and persecution at this point. They don't have the Holy Spirit, and their faith would undoubtedly fail at that point. So he's saving them from prosecution, prison, and maybe death as well. That's divine love in action. John records that Jesus did this in order to fill his own prophet, his own words. He had just said in John 17, I didn't lose one father, I didn't lose one except for Judas, and he was never one to start with. He was a son of perdition. So when you look at Jesus rescuing his 11 disciples because of our Lord's sacrifice for them, he says, take me and let them go free. That's the, that's the picture of salvation. We deserve to be taken and prosecuted to the full extent of God's law. And Jesus said, take me and let them go free. This is a microcosm of salvation. And not all the disciples accepted Jesus' offer to set them free. I love this guy. Verse 10. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, Shall I not drink it? Here's the principle. Like Jesus, we must be committed to completing God's mission for our lives, regardless of the cost. Like Jesus, we must be committed to completing God's mission for our lives, regardless of the cost. One of the reasons why we love Peter is because we resemble him. We often behave like him, right? Peter's been walking with Jesus for three years, and sometimes you think the guy's got amnesia and he's learned nothing in three years. Now, he's got a lot of courage. He's, he's the only one of the disciples who says, Lord, there's a big wave going, but if you want, command me to jump overboard and I'll walk to you. Uh, let me tell you, I'd be face down in the boat hanging out for dear life because none of these guys could swim, right? And they didn't have life preservers back then, right? So... Peter exhibits enormous courage, but his judgment is not so good. So Jesus has just negotiated Peter's release from prosecution. There's 400 soldiers. He said, take me, let them go free, and Peter pulls the sword. And you're going, Jesus just secured your release, and now you're ready to go get into it again where they're going to arrest you for murder. What's wrong with your head? He intends to prevent Jesus from being arrested by 200 Roman soldiers with one short sword. This is a picture of human effort trying to accomplish God's purposes. You've got your little 18-inch sword, and you are going to do the work of the Lord on your own strength. Not going to work, right? How does Peter handle a sword? He's a fisherman. He handles a sword like a fisherman. Not very well, right? He slashes at whoever's closest, and I'm sure the slave goes, he's trying to cut my head off, till <laughs> off goes the ear. Good thing he could duck, because if he didn't, Peter would have been guilty of murder. 
And John gives us the name of the slave, Malchus. Interestingly enough, anytime you see a gospel writer record a name, there's at least two reasons for it. One, every individual is important to Jesus. Jesus knows every name, every person ever created. They are all precious to him. And secondly, anytime a gospel writer writes a name down, that's an eyewitness. That is an eyewitness who is on site, who saw what they're recording, who can be used as collaboration, because some of the gospels were written fairly shortly after the events occurred. So there's multiple reasons why he puts down a specific name. Now, attempted murder is a pretty serious charge. Peter's in danger, and Jesus immediately intervenes. Luke 22 records that he healed the ear. That means he put the ear back on this guy's head with no blood and no scars. It was literally just like it never happened. I can only imagine the Roman commander wanting to have a look. Let me take a look at that ear. You know, the guy's on the ground screaming, and Jesus puts the ear back on immediately. No blood, no scar means no charges against Peter because there's no evidence they ever did anything stupid. I think the Lord sometimes does that for us, right? We do sinful things, we do foolish things, and sometimes in his infinite grace and mercy he says, I'm going to take the consequence of this so you don't have to live with your stupidity. Now, not always. Sometimes he says, you need to live with the consequences so you learn. But sometimes he heals it and we get always far more grace than we deserve because we don't deserve anything. In case you're wondering, Jesus didn't need Peter's sword. One of the gospel writers says that he immediately tells Peter, put the sword away. Don't you know that if I want, I can ask my father and he will give me more than 12 legions of angels. That's 72,000 angels. They're pretty good with swords, I'm told, right? They, they could probably handle 400 Roman soldiers and temple police, etc. But that's not the real point. The real point, Jesus says immediately, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Now, anytime in Scripture you read about the cup, it usually is referring to the cup of the wrath of God. It is God's righteous, perfect justice, perfect wrath against sin. Jesus' mission was what? To bear the wrath of God that we deserve, he was going to bear the wrath of God, the cup of God's wrath in place of the sinner. And he volunteered to do that out of love for us and love for his Father. Jesus, or Peter's, trying to prevent Jesus from dying, which is laudable. His mistake was thinking that God needs his help. How often do we get in that situation? where our prayers are like, God, I, I know you're a good God, but I really have to persuade you here to do the right thing. So our prayers are really intense. Oh God, can you please do what I want to do in this situation? Because I don't understand why this suffering's going on. I don't understand why this pain's occurring. I don't know why these people are arguing, etc., etc. God has purposes of which you and I do not understand because he sees eternity. Stuff that's happening in your life right now and the lives of your loved ones, God may have purposes 50, 75, 100 years from now. And you and I, we, we can't connect the dots. We just can't see them. He says, trust me, 
I know your great-grandchildren, and I know what's going to happen to them, and I know what's happening today and what the impact is going to be. In the same way that stuff happened with your great-grandparents, about which you know nothing, and it's had an impact on you four generations later. We're not smart enough to figure all that out. Peter's motives to protect Jesus are right, but he didn't get the big picture. Jesus said, I'm going to the cross. Peter goes, no, you're not going to the cross. And the last time Peter tried to talk Jesus out, Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. You're opposing my plan. You're opposing my Father's will. You're opposing the reason I came to planet Earth to start with, which is to pay for the sins of the world. And Peter didn't send it, get it, so he takes a sword out to try and help God. I don't know if you have figured out at this stage of life that God does not need our help. But sometimes when we're in the middle of our pain and our angst and our unknown, we want to influence him. By the way, there's nothing wrong with bringing a request to God. But submit at the end of the day. Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan, because anyone who tries to impose their plan on God is an ally of Satan. That's why we always say, thy will be done, because Father always does know best. Now, it's true that Peter finally understood that Jesus' mission was to come to earth to die for the sins of the world, because we know he preached in Acts 2. He got it through the coming of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' mission was to reconcile fallen humanity by paying their sin debt that separated them from God. And we have a mission. We have a mission and a commission by the Son of God to tell the world, to herald that good news, that everybody, anybody can have an eternal life relationship with the God of the universe through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is your and my mission. And we need to be as committed to that mission as Jesus was to make it possible. So God calls us to complete his mission for our lives, and he also says, regardless of the cost. You know, it's easy to say, well, pretty good deal. Jesus bought my freedom. We're going to take a look at the next month at the price tag it cost him to do that. His life, even far more than his physical life, to suffer the wrath of God, which we really have no comprehension of that. So I want to encourage us strongly to be clear on what God's mission for your life is and then be committed to carrying that out and fulfilling that based on his power, based on his leading. That's why we ask the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and direct us. Okay, let's summarize and then Tom's going to come and do prayer and praise. First of all, Jesus was not a victim of his crucifixion. Throughout this gospel, throughout all the gospels, you will see the lordship of Christ over his own crucifixion. He was the volunteer. He was a victorious volunteer. He chose to lay down his life on a precise, eternal schedule that he and his father had put in place from eternity past. Number two, no one can stay on their feet in the presence of holy God. Here's a good clue. If you're still standing, you ain't in his presence. If you're still strutting your stuff, you're not in his presence. When you're in his presence, you understand, we understand, I, I'm the head of that line, 
how undeserving we are and how amazing it is that the Father would love us to the point of sending His Son for our behalf. Number three, Jesus sacrificially loves and protects those that belong to Him. He told the Roman soldiers, take me, let them go free. That's what He said to His Father. Take me, let them go free. Number four, like Jesus, we must be committed to completing God's mission for our lives regardless of the cost. You know, Jesus said, my hour's not come, and then he said, my hour's come. You and I in this room have far fewer days than we think. We do. And I know you say, well, my genetic code means I'll live to 95. Yeah, you might. And a lot of those years, you probably won't want to. <laughs> and they're not going to be your best years physically. Don't delay getting on with what your mission is in this life now. Amen? I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.